0: Bible biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. This time around, Mike, we're going to be focusing on Nicodemus. Uh, Where do we find the story of Nicodemus in the Bible? Well, the first place he
1: pops up in the story is in John chapter 3. In fact, he occurs three times and they're all in John's gospel. And it's in John chapter 3 where we get in that whole discussion about what it means to be born again when he comes and talks to Jesus. So who who was Nicodemus? Well, we read that Nicodemus was, the New Living Translation describes him as a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. So we just need to perhaps uh, unpack that because what was a Pharisee? Well, the first thing to note is that being a Pharisee was not a job. It was a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Most Pharisees were middle-class tradesmen, and being a Pharisee was the way of life they lived. They were... Reasonably numerous. We reckon there were at least about 6,000 of them in the time of Jesus, and they were pretty influential. So, what was it about the Pharisees? Well, we need to understand a little bit of history, and we just got to go back with the history of Israel a little bit. In previous episodes, we've touched on how Israel and Judah were eventually taken into exile. Israel, the northern kingdom, exile scattered gone forever but Judah taken into exile in Babylon and there they stayed for 70 years before being brought back again to the promised land now while they were in exile they obviously had lots of questions to ask chief of which was how on earth did we end up here we're mm. supposed to be the people of God and while they were in exile they they came to the conclusion well the reason's very simple we we've ended up in exile because we disobeyed God. We didn't obey God's law. And the books of kings, which were probably written and pulled together in exile, carry that theme all the way through. Wherever a king was disobedient, judgment comes. Mm-hmm. Wherever they were obedient, blessing comes. And so they realized it was because they had been disobedient to God's word that judgment had come. So as they come back to the promised land, as they return from exile, what's deep in their hearts is this understanding that, do you know what? If we don't want to end up in exile ever again, we had better learn how to be obedient to God's word. And it was out of that that the seedbed, the forerunners of the Pharisees came, a group of people who devoted themselves to absolute obedience to God's word so that this would never happen again. And so, they began to think through God's word and what it meant to be obedient to it. So, you know, six days you shall labor and on the seventh you shall rest. Okay, that's pretty clear. Good. We know we don't need to work. But hang on a minute. What does work mean? They began to ask. What can I do? So, If I'm a tailor who makes clothes, can I make clothes? No, absolutely not. And they started to write all these down as sort of extra rules, the rabbinic teaching, an exposition of the law. If I'm a tailor, can I carry a needle in my garment? You know, when they were sewing, you can imagine them just putting it in their lapel while they were doing the next bit of work. No, no, no. So before it gets to Sabbath, you, you better check that you're not carrying a pin in your garment because that's carrying a burden and that's carrying work. Now we might think that's really silly, isn't it? But remember, this came out of a good heart, a heart whereby we want to obey God scrupulously lest we ever end up in exile again. But then the more you do this, the more you start to find ways of getting round keeping the law. So He was a real example from rabbinic writings of the time of Jesus. If I get toothache, can I rub vinegar on my tooth? Because vinegar was seen as an antiseptic and something that would help. And the rabbis actually wrote down, no, you are not allowed to rub vinegar on your tooth because the very act of rubbing, there you are moving your arm. Yes, that is work. No rubbing of vinegar on teeth. (laughs) However... If you put vinegar on your food and you eat the food because you're allowed to eat and the vinegar on the food happens to heal your tooth, then that's okay. (laughs) Suddenly we're starting to get quite hair-splitting, aren't we? (laughs) Some loopholes within the rules. Absolutely. And by the time of Jesus, there were thousands and thousands of these extra rules that the rabbis had created and that the Pharisees had committed themselves to living it. Now, what we have to remember is while to us it seems nitpicking, while at times Jesus had little time for the Pharisees, while at times he said you just make a whole load of burdens that you put on other people that you can't even keep yourself, while at times he described them as whitewashed tombs, what we have to remember is that it all started out good heartedly? Hmm. It started out from this conviction of we really need to keep God's law because we don't want to end up under judgment again. And by the time of Jesus, there was a belief among the Pharisees that if the whole of Israel were to keep the law for just one day, hmm. Messiah would come. <laughs> and that's why the Pharisees were so opposed to Jesus, because what they saw him doing by their standards was constantly breaking the law. Yeah. And so they're constantly coming to him saying, stop doing that. Stop your disciples picking corn on the Sabbath. Don't you know you, Jesus, are stopping Messiah coming? Of course, the irony was there was Messiah before yeah. them. So Nicodemus was one of these Pharisees. And sure, there were some who were nitpicking legalists. But there were others, and Nicodemus is one of those, who were godly, good-hearted, and who wanted to keep these laws with all their heart. But sadly, by New Testament times, these rules had become so burdensome, so ridiculous, that actually the rules explaining the rules were now undermining the rules as Jesus exposed
0: at times. So I can imagine then that he was Clearly, a a questioner, somebody who was trying to understand life and faith and trying to make sense of it all. Absolutely. Which is how we first encounter
1: him in John chapter 3. Because the story starts like this there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, He came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So he's coming to Jesus, acknowledging that there is something about this man and his teaching that is different. That the miracles that Jesus does are evidence that God is with him. Did you know, by the way, it said he he came after dark one evening? Um, now, common answer to that is, well, he came after dark because he, he didn't want to be seen. At this point, he's, he's on a bit of an undercover operation, mm-hmm. and that could well be the case. But there was actually also a rabbinic tradition at this time that learning in the evening was of more value than learning in the day. So he might have been living out. And for all the listeners out there who are night owls and like doing their learning at night, they might quite prefer (laughs) that interpretation.
0: But he was there with his questions and looking for answers and referred to Jesus as rabbi. Is that sort of significant? Yes,
1: rabbi, the word meaning teacher. He's acknowledging Jesus here as one of the great teachers of Israel, as one of the rabbis. So already there's a mark of respect. He's coming to Jesus respectfully, questioningly. He's seeing that there's something about Jesus that demands further investigation. Pretty much like many people, perhaps today, they might not believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he's risen from the dead and with us today. But, you know, they've heard enough and seen enough, or maybe they've seen in the lives of other Christians. Just there's a something, there's a something that I just need To push a little further. And that's why things like the Alpha Course, for example, these days are so popular because there are so many people who've got this, there must be something about Jesus, but they don't know what it is. And things like Alpha Course and other courses are just great opportunities for people to do what Nicodemus did, to come with their honest questions and to get an answer. Though it's interesting, as we read on in this particular story, Um, Jesus doesn't really answer his questions. It's almost as if he sees beneath the surface and actually doesn't respond to what he said at all, but just goes for the heart of it. And he simply says to him, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Yes, it's a strange reply. It is, isn't it? I mean, it seems a complete non sequitur. You know, you'd have thought he might have said, "Oh, you know, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. How can I help you?" You know, would have been at least like a polite way of beginning. But, but clearly, I think Jesus sees this guy's heart. He sees he is a seeker. He sees that he's serious, and he just cuts to the chase with this enigmatic saying that Nicodemus simply doesn't understand. He says. What do you mean? How can an old man? That's interesting, isn't it? How can an old man? So he's clearly an older guy. Mm. Be go back into his mother's womb and be born again. I, that's a nonsense, Jesus. And 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 Jesus, that sort of has a little playfulness with him at this point, and um, says to him, "You know, you're you're a respected teacher. How is it that you don't know these things?" But but first he says, "Listen, I I, I tell you." no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can only reproduce human life. Only the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again because the wind blows wherever it wants. And just as you hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Holy Spirit. So the essence there is Nicodemus, you're a man who is truly seeking the kingdom of God. I I see that in you. But you need to know no one can enter that kingdom without being born of water and the spirit. Now, one of the traditional ways of understanding that in some branches of Christianity, born of water, they've seen as a reference to baptism that you need to be baptized in water and baptized in the spirit Mm -hmm. to enter the kingdom. But I think in context, it's not what Jesus means at all. What have they just been talking about? About a human birth, about being born, and Nicodemus says, how can I go back in my mother's womb again? Mm. And I think what Jesus is saying here is you can't enter God's kingdom without being born humanly but that isn't enough certainly being born a jew the water there, referring to the breaking of the waters as a baby is born it's not just enough nicodemus to be born a jew being born a jew can't save you and listen it never has look through the whole of the old testament ethnicity was never the ground of salvation faith was So you need to be born, Nicodemus, not just as a Jew. What you need if you're going to enter the kingdom of God is you need to be born of the Holy Spirit, to have an experience of the Holy Spirit that so changes your heart and your life that it's like beginning a brand new life.
0: Now, for this Pharisee, with all the rules and regulations and interpretation, that presumably is, to say the least, mind-blowing. Well, it must have been because,
1: remember, this is a godly guy. This is a guy who wants God, who wants the blessing of God, who wants the blessing of God on his people. And the way that he's always believed that possible is by a whole list of things that I must do and things that I must not do the commandments that are in Scripture itself, but those commandments then interpreted by the rabbinic traditions. It's a tick list, not a superficial tick list for him, a genuine, profound, I believe in this, but I have to tick this list to be a true part of God's family.
0: And Jesus is saying the tick list isn't actually that important
1: he's saying the tick list is completely irrelevant, which is even further than your statement. It's not just not that important. It is completely irrelevant. And of course, the whole gospels will show us this as the message of Jesus goes out, not just to the religious, but to those who are incredibly irreligious, to those that the religious despise, to the tax collectors and sinners, as they call them, to the marginalized in society, to those who weren't good enough. Those are the ones that Jesus goes to with the gospel, and those are the ones that so easily respond. So if nothing else comes out of our episode today, what we need to underline is that this story of Nicodemus shows us that God is not interested in our tick lists. God is not interested in our religion. What God wants is relationship, not religion. And if we get the relationship right with him, if we give our lives to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm trusting you to forgive me everything that's passed. I'm now going to follow you and seek to do whatever you tell me. And at times I'll still get it wrong, like the apostles got it wrong in the gospels. But each time getting up and still pursuing Jesus, it's in the pursuing of Jesus and in that making a start through, as Jesus puts it elsewhere in the Gospels, repenting and believing the good news, turning around, turning away from the life you used to live, and uh, asking Jesus to fill us with his Holy Spirit so that we have this new birth, this spiritual birth. That's how we get in a right relationship with God.
0: Because you hear people say, I'm simply not good enough to become a Christian. Oh, I've heard that so
1: many, many times as a pastor. Do you know, one of the stories I can never forget is from the very first year that I was a pastor of a church in Manchester in England. And in that first year, that summer, we did a a sort of children's crusade, children's camp over the, the summer. And I remember this mother bringing her child to the meeting, and then coming at the end of the meeting to pick the child up. It was pouring with rain, and she stood outside the church building. And I went out and said, for goodness sake, don't wait out. Come on in, come on in. No, no, it, no, no I'll, I'll wait out here. Thank you. And she just wouldn't come into the church building. And it's, she just didn't feel she could mm. come in. The other thing I've so often heard as a pastor is people saying, and I heard this only a few weeks ago, most recently, someone saying to me, you know, I'm going to start coming to church when I've sorted my life out a bit more. (laughs) And I always take great delight in saying, listen, church is the place where we learn together (laughs) to sort out our life more. And if you wait till you've sorted your life out more before you come to church, you will never come. Church is a place where we come to sort our life out, not a place where we come
0: when we have sorted our life out. Listening to what you were saying about being born again makes me think, you know, you hear people talk about born again Christians as if they're a certain sort of Christian. Sounds to me as if that's not what's being said here.
1: No, and the trouble is uh, born-again Christian is a a phrase that that carries a whole load of baggage in our culture today. Um, It it can be used as a despising comment. Oh, they're all a load of bunch of born-again Christians, which which means oh, they're Christians who take their faith seriously. Across the Atlantic, in North America, a born again Christian often has a certain package, and they will be assumed by the populace at large to vote Republican, be anti-abortion, pro-gun carrying, etc., etc. So a certain package, and and Jesus had none of these ideas in mind. You know, you can be a, a born again Baptist, a born again Methodist, a born again Pentecostal, a born again Anglican. All it means is someone. Who has come to that point of realizing they cannot live life on their own? They need Jesus to forgive them. They need Jesus to walk with. And they do need a genuine experience. And I, I think both here in the scripture and throughout church history, that experience of new birth, of a new start with Jesus. And you know, for some people, that's powerful and dramatic. One of the most dramatic in the New Testament is the story of Saul who became St. Paul, isn't it? Where he's Mm. knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and has this vision. And we often talk about a Damascus Road experience. And still today, there are people who have powerful momentary encounters where their life is completely turned around. The pastor that I work alongside in my semi-retirement still uh, became a Christian under my ministry nearly 40 years ago, and we've been close friends ever since. But he became a Christian through, well, coming for a meal, actually. We talked about hospitality (laughs) in a previous episode. And he came with a bunch of students after church one day, was sitting around my lunch table my wife had prepared this gorgeous meal we're eating. I'm chatting to the students. And I turned to him and said, so Martin, you know, how did you become a Christian? And he said, oh, I'm not a Christian. I said, oh, sorry, I'm not trying to corner you. And, and suddenly he starts to pour his heart out. And it's it's clear he's ready. He's aware how, what a mess his life is in. And I challenged him to read John's gospel. Um, and I said, but if you, you know, if, if you want to know if God's there, you've got to give God a chance. So read a gospel and, and say, God, would you speak to me through this book? And he said, well, I don't know if I believe in God. So I said, well, okay, could you pray this? God, I don't know if you are there, but if you are, could you please speak to me? And he said, yeah, I could pray that. So that night he went home. God, I don't know if you are there, but if you are, would you please speak to me as I read through this book? And he read through John's gospel start to finish. And his story is, I got to the end and nothing had happened. So I thought, perhaps I didn't read it properly. (laughs) So he went back. It's now well after midnight. He goes back to John chapter 1 and starts to read through John chapter 1 and gets to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And suddenly, in his words, Jesus came and filled that room on his own, reading the scriptures, Mm. he had been an incredibly bad boy. You name it, he had done it. And in that moment, he encountered Jesus like Paul did. And he rang me the next morning to say, something weird's happened to me. I need to come and see you. (laughs) And his life has never been the same. But you know what? That's perhaps the fewer number than the others who almost just gradually have an awakening awareness of, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. My own experience is that I became a Christian over the summer between leaving sixth form and going to university through starting to go to a Christian youth group, Looking, watching, listening to the epilogues, then being told if you wanted to come to the youth group, you had to go to church once a month. And I thought, oh no. But anyway, there were lots of pretty girls. So I thought it was worth (laughs) it. So I went for the girls, not for God. But just as I heard the gospel, I kept thinking, I agree with that. I agree with that. That makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. Until the point came when eventually actually, I'm pretty sure I was a Christian by that point, but I got down on my knees and and said, God, I'm sure I know you now. I'm sure I have been born again, but just to do it properly, I want you to know. And I looked at my watch on the date and said, on such and such a date and time, I give my life to you. And I waited for the second hand to come to the top and said, now, (laughs) Um, because I wanted to make sure I'd done it. So listen, some will come in a moment of encounter. Others, it will be a process. But however the journey, you know, we can all reach that destination where we've come to a place where we know our sins, our past life is forgiven. And Jesus has done something in us to give us a new start, to give us a new birth, to fill us with his spirit and to begin a new life just like Nicodemus did. By the way, not everything changed. I was going to say Nicodemus that day. Did did Nicodemus get it? He got it increasingly, but he didn't get it all that day. Now, I said earlier there were like three occasions where he appears in John's gospel. The second occasion is in John chapter 7, which is the story of uh, Jesus going to the feast of Tabernacles and Many people believing in in him. And as a result of that, the religious officials send the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus, but they can't do it because the the crowds are so in favor of him. And they come back and say, well, no one spoke like this. And the chief priests and the Pharisees say, oh, so he's, he's conned you as well as he and then we read this that Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? So he speaks up for Jesus and says, Hey guys, come on, you, you know, we can't condemn a guy without giving him a fair hearing. And their reply is, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. Mm. Of course, it didn't come from Galilee, you've been born. Mm in Bethlehem, hadn't he? So there's that second occasion where he's arguing against condemning Jesus without a fair trial. So we're still in the background, still looking, still on listening. a journey, yeah. isn't he? Still listening, but mm. he's not ready to stand against this guy. Mm. But then there's the third occasion, is in John 19, which is after the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, when Joseph of Arimathea, goes to Pilate to ask for his body to bury him. Now, Joseph of Arimathea in John 19 is described as someone who is a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders and the huge pressure that they obviously put on people. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and asks for permission to take Jesus's body down from the cross and to bury him Clearly, he would just, as a common criminal in their eyes, have been left on the cross for the birds to eat or ultimately thrown into a common grave. And Joseph wants to give him a proper burial. And burial in those days was not a burial like ours uh, in the West, uh, put in a coffin in the grain, but the body was put inside a tomb and allowed to decompose. And a year later, the bones gathered and then put in a box and ossuary which would have normally been put in the family tomb in some niche in, in the rock, but what we read here is that as Joseph goes to Pilate to ask for permission, we read that with him came Nicodemus, oh. the man who came to Jesus at night. There's that reference to him coming at night again. Mm. Clearly, that stuck in people's mind. Mm. So Nicodemus comes with Joseph of Arimathea, and it says he brought about seventy-five pounds. Of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes, and they anoint Jesus's body and wrap it and lay it in the tomb. That's so a,
0: that sounds like a lot of spices.
1: It's an awful lot of spices. and And to put it into perspective using the the Roman measurements, Mary had anointed Jesus's feet with one litre of precious ointment. and one litre of precious ointment, nard was a year's worth of wages. So here is Nicodemus and Joseph bringing 100 liters of precious ointments, a 100 years' worth of wages. Put that into modern terms. So has Nicodemus most definitely become a follower of Jesus at this point? Has that new birth happened within him? Well, the text doesn't actually tell us, but I'll tell you what, to give away 100 years worth of your wages shows that some profound change had happened, and if Nicodemus is not yet quite there, goodness, he is pretty near the end of the journey. So what a transition we've seen in this guy through these
0: three encounters. So discovering that Nicodemus isn't, Quite there yet, but he's well on his way. Is that for you, as you reflect on Nicodemus's life, uh, disappointing or or heartening? No, I think it's
1: heartening because it reflects, I think, the experience of many people today, and it, it shows us that that sometimes grasping who Jesus is, and then not just grasping who he is, but making the decision to follow him, live his way, become his disciple is for many people a process. Yes, there are those examples where people like St. Paul, who have a sudden encounter and in a moment see who Jesus is and give their lives to him. But for most people, and I think most people in the West these days where we have so little knowledge of the background of Jesus, it often takes some time for people to sort of just learn about the facts before they can make a judgment about the facts. So I, I think he's really encouraging that it shows us we, we can come to God in a moment, but we can also come to God by process. And he, and that is, I think, the thing that Nicodemus gives to us, that if we will come open-heartedly and good-heartedly to Jesus looking at the evidence, asking all our questions and being ready to go on a journey, then we too can experience like him that new birth, that new beginning and start a new life with Jesus and all the excitement and potential that that contains.
0: David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of
1: the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible catch their conversations anytime on the
0: ucb player or with your favorite podcast provider just search for bible biogs in 30 minutes